Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Coronapod. We're three months into the show now and joining me this week is Features Editor Richard Van Norden and a new voice that you won't have heard before, Senior Reporter Nidhi Subaraman, who's based in Washington DC. Now, the past week has been difficult, to say the least. The killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man at the hands of the police in Minnesota, has led to a wave of justified anger that has swept through societies, including academic institutions and research centres. Protests under the Black Lives Matter banner have erupted across the world, few of which are more prominent than those in Washington, D.C. And Nidhi, that's where you are. Tell us about the last week. It's certainly been surreal, I'll say that. We've already been kind of under odd circumstances at home pretty much since the middle of March. But starting in the weekend, we've begun to see people back on the streets in masks marching for the Black Lives Matter movement against police brutality and just people coming out in sheer numbers that I haven't seen since like the inauguration and every march that followed in the city since. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty extreme thing to see anyway, and it's a very, very emotionally testing time for people. But somehow it almost feels like it's even more extreme because we've had this long period of not seeing people gathering outside. You know, it's almost adding more power to it. More than a couple of times this week, I've been home and working on stories and uh, stopped to go step out on the balcony and people are marching down 14th Street and stopping and kneeling and raising their arms and, you know, chanting the names of people who have died in incidents related to police violence. And it's just incredibly moving and it's a very strong moment. While I had been to protests and marches in the past as a reporter, because my primary work here hasn't been to cover the movement itself. I haven't participated in any because that's the practice for journalists in the US. I've stayed sort of at an arm's distance, but tried to follow it in every way possible just because it's such a huge, huge moment at this time. 
So, Nidhi, I've been um, seeing also that you are watching how scientists are responding to this. A huge amount of commentary on how this movement should be responded to by scientists and scientific societies and journalists. And there's been some really striking statements made. Yes, I think what we're seeing is that people are really grieving George Floyd's death in Minneapolis in particular, but sort of stating it in the context of black people, African-Americans being killed or disproportionately targeted by police violence time and time again. Scientists on Twitter are being unusually candid about how these social events are impacting their ability to do work in the lab on a day-to-day basis just because of the weight of this event in the news each time. In addition, they're pointing out that science itself has been in some ways hostile to minorities, women, people of color, black scientists in particular. And this altogether is a very hard time. There's loads of suggestions about how people could first take note or acknowledge that there are these inequities socially and in particular in science. And lots of people are talking about how they could be supported better by the institutions and by their colleagues. Inequities in science and inequities in the world are very much front and centre in a lot of our minds, and rightly so, at the moment. And as we live through this pandemic, which is still ongoing, it's something that applies there as well. You've been reporting on this as well, Nidhi, about the disproportionate way that the coronavirus has impacted people of colour. Just yesterday, that's Wednesday in the UK, because we're recording on a Thursday, a report was released from Public Health England, which has demonstrated that people of colour have been up to two times more likely to die from coronavirus infections. And that is something that's been reflected in various studies around the world. Nidhi, tell us about what you've been reporting on. So this was something that I covered for Nature a couple of weeks ago. And like all aspects of the pandemic, the exact snapshot shifts week to week. But this theme seems to have persisted in some capacity or the other, which is that from the beginning, as soon as people realized that this virus was going to go big, experts expected that it would affect people of color worse. I've been hearing that past epidemics from HIV to the diphtheria outbreak in New York, the small and the big ones have had this sort of unequal impact and people were saying it's just a matter of time. And sure enough, in early April, a couple of weeks into when the major lockdowns went into place in the US, the first numbers began to emerge in Louisiana, in Michigan, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, places that were a third or a quarter of the population, uh, African-American or Black, were seeing absurdly high rates of infection and fatalities. The frustrating thing was that, like in many aspects of this pandemic, the data was hard to come by. In the US, we've heard that we've had trouble finding numbers for how many tests have been done and how many deaths there have been. And early on, not many people were reporting the ethnic and racial breakdown of deaths and infections due to coronavirus in the U.S. And it really required, in some cases, lawsuits, in some cases, letters from experts, in some cases, FOIA requests to force municipalities and states to count these numbers and report them. I believe the CDC, the National Public Health Organization here, wasn't reporting breakdown of the case numbers until late into April. And even so, Just about a quarter of the 
total number of cases that they were reporting were broken down by race and ethnicity. Given that, you know, as you mentioned, there was an expectation that this would disproportionately hit people of colour, you know, it strikes me as shocking that these data were not being gathered and reported from the beginning. But is that perhaps unsurprising based on, you know, the way that organisations like this work? You know, that's a great question that I haven't had a satisfactory answer for. I've asked everybody I've spoken to why hasn't this data been gathered? Is it because it was sort of an ad hoc exercise just dealing with this pandemic and noting who is being affected by it? Or is it because people don't want to know? Or is it because there isn't a system in place that acknowledges that we need to know and funnels it into you know the machine in a way that is efficient and fast? I really haven't had a good answer to this. I'd guess that part of the story is that the system in the US, at least, is extremely decentralized. And state public health departments typically have the power in collecting data and reporting it to the CDC. And so, again, as in all aspects of this response, it has varied state to state how fast people have been and how effective they have been in getting this information. In one way, it's very well known why these health disparities exist. As you wrote, they're systemic. Black people are getting infected more in America because they're exposed more and less protected, Kamara Phyllis-Jones said, and, and there are these socioeconomic and health disparities. But at least in the UK analysis that was released yesterday, there's some attempt to sort of unpick this and say, is it related more to chronic conditions like diabetes, obesity and cardiovascular disease that have a higher incidence in some groups? Is it related to the low paid professions, the jobs that people do, like um, staffing grocery stores or driving buses and trying to sort of unpick the strands of all of this? It feels to me like that might be really hard to do and perhaps a never ending task, which in the, in the end maybe is not going to get us any closer to the sort of what's staring us in the face. I, I don't know whether researchers nearly feel that, you know, this can be unpicked and, and all of this can be broken down and, and controlled for. And we might come up with a surprising finding about the, the biggest contributor to this inequity or whether this kind of research is, is in the end academic once the uh, initial data has been gathered. You know, that's a really interesting question that I discussed with a researcher in the UK while I was reporting this piece. She was pointing to the way the disease was playing out among South Asian groups in the UK. And I, perhaps the study addressed this. You guys have taken a look closer than I have. But she was saying that some South Asian groups are socially and economically better off than others. Indians tend to be more affluent than Bangladeshis, for example, while sharing the history of migration and a propensity to certain underlying conditions in a way. So looking at these Asian populations in the UK might be an opportunity to tease apart some of what's really a muddled set of factors. Right. The British analysis hasn't accounted for factors like obesity or, or the jobs done by the people who've died it tried to account for the effect of uh, social deprivation and age and sex and region, but there's a lot of factors that it hasn't controlled for. So it is quite tricky to tangle it out and figure out when you take these things into account whether there's other differences. It seems on the face of it perhaps unlikely that there should be any biological difference. It does seem to me that it probably does all come down to socioeconomic factors and the jobs people do and systemic racism that's still in societies and, and how that plays out in this pandemic. But um, it's going to be interesting to see the figures. I expect we won't know for a long time. 
what the key drivers of these disparities are. It's interesting that you mentioned biology there. This is something that I remember having a conversation with Amy Maxman, which CoronaPod listeners will know about this in the past. And she said, you know, this is something that people will often jump to very quickly when there is these disparities, which are very, very common in outbreaks that she's covered in the past. Very quickly, people will see these disparities and they'll jump to, there must be some biological reason that people of colour are perhaps more susceptible than others. She says, you know, it's a really dangerous thing to jump to because there are these multitude of factors. And the reality is that making that assumption is a very, very dangerous one because it can lead to people not looking into those, you know, multitude of interconnecting factors and the systemic racism, which could potentially be the true cause of this. Right. I would think it would be the last thing really one would think of. One would think that issues of societal inequity would be the major drivers here. We'll have to see as more data comes in, but that does seem to be kind of the obvious explanation. I'd agree. And it's interesting that it manifests in a, in a few different ways, depending on the communities you look at, the social factors in particular. I'd heard from experts that part of why the infection rates may be higher in Latino and African-American populations in the U.S. had to do with a general mistrust of the health system and a reluctance to seek medical care and or heed public health messaging early on about mask wearing and social distancing. And I've seen two different reasons for that. In the African-American community, I'm pointed to a history of exploitation and a deep-rooted kind of distrust of the system from that community because of those reasons. And among Latinos in the U.S., it is a large immigrant population. And immigrants, depending on their status, tend to be reluctant to seek healthcare because they worry about compromising their status. So again, there is a distrust, but rooted in sort of a different social and cultural reason. But of course, regardless, if public health messaging isn't reaching communities, that's going to make things harder and it's going to make it difficult to control and know the extent of the disease there. With all of these really complex interconnected factors, you know, that it's hard to pick apart, you can't get away from the fact that the very stark reality of this disproportionate effect is there. And that is happening right now. What do we do about it? If it's difficult to work out exactly what the cause could be, is there at least some kind of suggestion from researchers about how we could tackle that problem? What are the recommendations? Yeah, I think uh, there was a strong push for just recognizing the problem and collecting the data. And we've seen leaps and bounds of improvement in that. It's not perfect, but people have recognized it as a problem. There have been laws passed requiring hospitals to report such data. So there's improvement there. I think since the pandemic is sadly ongoing, there is a stress on some certain fundamentals. Again, make sure messages are reaching communities. Make sure your testing capacities are reaching communities who may not come to you. So in Louisiana, for example, certain hospitals were sending out testing teams to communities that they knew would have a hard time getting into cars and driving to their facility. So that sort of acknowledgement of circumstances, while not surprising, is definitely relevant to helping shut down the pandemic. One sort of radical seeming idea was a national commission in the U.S. to focus on COVID-19 among people of color, because as we've seen, there has been a lack of national coordination and 
because of how decentralized and uneven things are, the experts I spoke to said, if we have a unified voice sort of at the center, making recommendations, providing guidance and prioritizing these groups, we might see a more uniform and more consistent flow of resources, flow of information. And now that we know that this is a gap, be better positioned to support these groups. Absolutely. I, one thing I didn't quite get to my story, but if we're talking about the US, it would be remiss if we didn't mention this disease has hit Native American communities really hard. And I didn't mention it in the piece because the factors that go into that are so unique. But essentially, Navajo Nation surpassed New York as having the highest rate of infections earlier last month. It's such a horrifying betrayal of that community, considering that, okay, so the way the healthcare system works, the federal government has an obligation, a treaty obligation to provide healthcare to Native American tribes. And they have documentedly been failing in this promise for decades, for hundreds of years. And it makes things harder when the lands are vast and people live far away from each other and don't have a culture of social distancing amongst themselves. But the rates of infection in Native American communities has been remarkable and the lack of response there has been stunning. Is there anyone that's trying to tackle this problem of the increased infections amongst these indigenous communities? I've seen local NGOs swing into action. I've seen the president of Navajo Nation and the local community really take this very seriously and do their utmost to pay attention to World Health Organization guidelines and be transparent to a degree about the numbers coming out and the, the response that they've been able to make so far. It hasn't gone away, so I imagine we'll keep hearing more of it. I think uh, Doctors Without Borders sent a team to Navajo Nation to help with the response in the absence of a federal response. Well, at this point in the show, we would usually transition to our segment called One Good Thing. But this week, we're not going to do that. Um, not because there aren't many good things still in the world, but because I think that we all feel that particularly this week, when on top of the challenges of the pandemic, the world and the scientific community is grieving, that this isn't really a time for frivolity. It's a time for reflection. Instead, Richard, I know that you have brought with you one thing that people may want to listen to or could perhaps act as food for thought for them, or at least focus their attention in these trying times. Well, it's not exactly recent, but I've been listening to George the Poet, who UK listeners might know very well because he's won lots of awards for his podcast, but I don't know if, he, if his fame has reached the United States. He is a British uh, poet and rapper and podcast host of Ugandan Heritage, and his podcasts have just been amazing explorations of what it's like to grow up black in Britain and takes you into his world and the world of the people he knows and reflects on Britain's role in the oppression of black people in a incredibly involving and thoughtful way. I mean, he's been on television this week talking about racism and some of the parallels between the United Kingdom and the United States, but his whole back catalogue on his podcast is just incredible and I'd highly recommend that people check it out this week. I wholeheartedly second that recommendation. If people haven't come across Georgia Poet, he is incredible. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this part of the show. Stay with us for a dive into the history of past pandemics. But before that, I'll let Niddy and Richard go. Niddy, Richard, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. For the second half of the show this week, reporter Nick Howe has been looking into the history of past pandemics. In particular, he's been asking, are there lessons to be drawn from the outbreaks of the past? To find out, Nick spoke to Frank M. Snowden, a historian of medicine who's written a book about the impact of epidemics on society. Nick started off by asking Frank how diseases have shaped humanity. First and perhaps most obvious is the emergence of public health. Public health began as a discipline with bubonic plague in the 14th and 15th centuries, especially in the Italian cities like Florence and Venice. Those entities began to organize methods of public health with quarantine, with plague hospitals. All of those were a public health body known as the health magistracies. We now know them instead as boards of health or departments of health. Another feature very closely related to it is that epidemic diseases are one of the factors that went along with the emergence and molding of the modern state. That is to say that these smaller entities in uh, the Italian peninsula and then across Europe, in order to deal with bubonic plague, it was necessary to have military means. It was necessary to have taxation and the establishment of funding for the response efforts to create these health magistracies. So we see that leading to an enormous increase in powers of the state. And and so considering the history of epidemics across the world, do you see similar things playing out to what has happened in the past or are things different this time? So the coronavirus is not just like another disease in the past. It will have its own history and its own impact. But what we can learn from epidemic diseases is that they're so profound, they immediately raise the question of what we believe in most profoundly. We have uh, a recurring tendency to pose the question of who's to blame for outbreaks like this and therefore to have winch hunting in the time of the Black Death. There was the hunting down of Jews held to be responsible for the plague or there were outbursts of xenophobia. This happened again and again through a wave of other epidemic diseases. One can see a lot of these themes recurring in different ways, however, with the coronavirus. As many diseases in the past, it again is leading to scapegoating. There's also the fact this has an enormous impact on the economy. And the bubonic plague ravaged the economy of the period. Trade stopped, production stopped, agriculture was in disarray. Now, this fairly certainly will be nothing in terms of scale of the bubonic plague, but we even see already that it doesn't have to be in order to throw the global economy into disarray. So this is a disease that once again is showing that epidemics have the capacity really to cause 
human societies and economies to be under enormous stress and to begin to unravel. I mean, the last chapter of your book, if I remember correctly, is called Dress Rehearsals for the 21st Century, Ebola and uh, SARS. Like, it seems almost like an ominous prescient thing to write at the time for what we're now facing. Could you speak a little bit about what you meant there where you were talking about SARS and Ebola? I was taking on board what public health officials have been saying since 1997, that it is inevitable that we will face increasing challenges from pulmonary viruses and also other emerging diseases. After each of these emergencies, for example, SARS, there have been enormous attempts to galvanize the world and individual countries into preparedness to face the next emergency. After each test, like SARS, uh, there has been a flare-up of preparedness, of plans being drafted, funds allocated so that we can cope. But after very soon, that willingness and commitment seem to dissolve. There's a kind of collective amnesia. The funds dry up and preparedness withers. So do you think then that history is just sort of doomed to repeat itself? Or or do you hope that we might learn something from this latest outbreak? My greatest hope is that this time will be different. In a sense, one of the horrible aspects is that this epidemic of coronavirus is going to shake the world in very, very fundamental ways. I think all of those things reveal that we really have to change if we don't intend to go through this again and again, perhaps in even much worse ways. That was Frank M. Snowden from Yale University. If you want to know more about the history of epidemics, then Frank's book is called Epidemics and Society, and we'll put a link to a review of the book in the show notes. And that takes us to the end of this week's episode of Coronapod. I want to thank Nidhi Subaraman and Richard Van Norden for chatting to me earlier, and to Nick for his interview with Frank Snowden. For more information on everything we've talked about, do check out the show notes. I'll put links to everything I can in there. And if you're being affected by anything we've discussed in this show, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on Twitter at Nature Podcast or via email podcast at nature.com. Remember that there's a coronavirus-free episode of the Nature Podcast coming out every Wednesday. You can find that wherever you found this. And until next week, thank you very much. Stay safe and solidarity. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.